The Selectors Show, Let's Talk About ESG, is sponsored by Invesco. Today's professional investors are overloaded with more information than ever. At Invesco, we help professional investors see the possibilities ahead by cutting through the noise to the ideas that matter. Visit Invesco.com to see how. Invesco, let's advance together. Capital at risk. Hello and welcome to Cityware Selectors podcast, Let's Talk About ESG. Joining me today is Jill Lotz, Global Leader for Sustainable Finance at EY. Jill, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here with you. It's an interesting time to be discussing sustainability because we have so many regulatory uh, changes coming through. And obviously, SFDR has been happening now since March. But then the next big milestone is the EU taxonomy. And I know that there are a lot of debates currently about what we include into it, be it nuclear or gas. Uh, I was wondering from your perspective, uh, what are the biggest challenges with this framework? And especially how does that impact asset managers and their sustainability aspirations? Yeah, so I think, um, and this came up a lot at COP, there's sort of two critical elements to mobilize private finance, I think, around climate change and sustainability. Um, one is greater country level policy framework. OK, um, and, you know, clearly the parties are working on that, but very welcome as the NDCs are defined. And you know, there's much greater clarity around sectors and countries, etc. And the second one is clearly financial services needs better sustainability data and better climate change data, which obviously means that um, it needs to be more accurate, it needs to be more measurable, it needs to be more um, comparable. And so, you know, taxonomy really underlies all of that second point. Um, so we, we seem to be, we're moving towards improve, wanting to improve the disclosures and reporting around sustainability. But really, in order to do that, you need a taxonomy. Um, and taxonomy also underlies the disclosures and reporting for your products and services, you know, how you report to your clients. So it's pretty, pretty fundamental for asset managers um, that getting the taxonomy fixed so that we can then improve reporting of, of corporates and then also improve reporting of products and services. And what about uh, kind of like specific problems with that? Because what I can envision is also a difference in interpretation, and that is already visible on sectoral level. But we are now only talking about the EU taxonomy, but what is coming through as well is, for example, a taxonomy in the UK. And then we might see something happening in China or in the US, you never know. So uh, what kind of unique challenges does that uh, pose? Yeah, so I think um, taxonomania, as uh, some have labelled it, it will be challenging for global players because, you know, having a plethora of different taxonomies to deal with is going to uh, increase your risk of managing them effectively, is going to increase your uh, cost of managing them, increase your efficacy of managing them. So I think if, if there is a whole proliferation of different taxonomies globally, then, then that makes things much more difficult for global uh, asset managers, global financial services. I, I'm kind of assuming 
they could throw loads of money at it and technology at it and come up with a solution. But I think the bait, you know, in terms of the sort of underlying issue, I think where you end up is um, if it's that complicated, you're probably going to make mistakes and, and therefore, you know, potentially unwittingly get into greenwashing uh, situations. But also from your client's perspective, um, again, if if they may be a client in one country, they may be a client that has multiple uh, exposures. And so for them, understanding what it is that they're investing in, what is the taxonomy that is applicable to them. So again, you might have a potential greenwashing just through um, clients' misunderstanding of, of what it is that they're investing in. So I think that's one kind of whole big layer there. On, on the other side, um, I think working toward a, a global baseline um, feels like a really good thing to do. And I know the Sustainable Finance Working Group of the G20 said that they were going to be doing that over the next 12 months, working towards a baseline on taxonomy and then also extending taxonomy to include um, transition, which I think is important. Um, but of course, sustainability particularly is not uniform globally. So I think, you know, even if you can come up with a global framework for taxonomy, um, there will be local variations because they've got to be local variations just because, you know, countries and regions uh, differ in their cultures and their approaches and their economies, et cetera. So I think there's always gonna be some level of managing the differences for the, for the asset manager or the financial services firm. But I think, it certainly, I believe if you've got a an overall global framework that that businesses can, let's say, initially voluntarily lean into and adopt, that feels like a good starting point. And one view I've heard as well, because we are currently kicking the taxonomy into shape, is that that could potentially have a knock-on effect even on the SFDR articles. So Article 6, Article 8 and Article 9 could potentially be revised to reflect it better and maybe also including the transition. So have you heard anything about that? And how, again, would we deal with that if this actually comes to pass? Because it seems like we are just grasping what those three articles mean. Yeah, I mean, look, I think sadly, um, evolution of standards, regulations, requirements, that's the new world. Um, in order for us to deal with climate change at the pace we've got to deal with it, in order for us to really progress on sustainability at the pace we need to do that, then, you know, I think we are facing into a highly complex topic that where there's quite a lot of ambiguity, a lack of standards. Um, and, and yet, if we don't lean into it and start to create action, we're too late. Um, and so to your point around Article 6, 8 and 9, it, that feels to me kind of inevitable. Um, it feels that it will have to adapt and evolve over time. And of course, the other thing you've got are the institutional investors requirements, because they are becoming a lot more demanding. The asset owner requirements, they are becoming a lot more demanding. And I think retail, whilst they're, they're not as active in this space currently in terms of their demands for transparency, et cetera, of the products and the underlying investments they're making, it definitely feels that that, that will pick up 
pretty quickly. So I think the asset managers dealing with evolving regulations and standards, plus then um, their own clients becoming a lot more demanding around the transparency and the visibility of, of what they're up to. And regulations aside, it seems that there is a sea change in terms of how asset managers see themselves and their role uh, for the wider society even. And this whole kind of idea of social license to operate seems to be taking root with asset managers as their whole kind of like goal and purpose. So do you see that actually happening? And kind of like, again, what do asset managers actually make of it? Yeah, really great question. Thank you for that. I think it's starting to feel to me as if, you know, historically, ESG was a product that asset managers uh, sold. Um, and I guess, you know, quite good profit margin on those products. Um, and of course, I'm generalizing, right? But, you know, um, and now it feels to me much more like if when asset managers think about their long-term viability, they're thinking about long-term value creation, which is different from a label or, or an investing style. Um, and we have a long-term value framework at EY that it has financial value as one of four pillars. So financial value is important, but it's one of four. The others are the um, consumer value, the employee value or talent value and the societal value. And I think asset managers, from what I sense, are pivoting towards that much more holistic view, thinking about the fact that the non-financial value is, is, is actually the three pillars of the non-financial value is where future value will be created. Um, and not just to give them their social license to operate, but also to uh, serve their clients' requirements and their employees' requirements as well. So I think it's critically important. It feels very different. It feels much more like a purpose and a culture and a long-term strategy rather than um, a product approach, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And if you look at ESG as value of an asset management company, for example, what does it practically mean? Do, do they need to kind of like define it somewhere on the piece of paper or does it go through all the kind of like segments of their business? How do they even start to grasp that and making it happen? Yeah, so yeah, not easy. Um, financial reporting and accounting has been around for like something like 198 years. Um, we started working on a project five years ago, the Embankment Project for Inclusive Capitalism, that was really looking at the non-financial value within businesses. And there's lots of figures quoted out there in terms of the size of that, you know, anything from 85% in certain sectors, where the value of the, of the businesses is in the non-financial aspects of, of what they do. So not easy is the short answer. Um, but I think, um, you know, the experience that we had working on the um, embankment project for inclusive capitalism was that if you and, and it's a bit like the WEF IBC, which followed and the ISSB that's obviously now going to follow after that. I think it's around defining the pillars, creating some high level, if you will, um, factors within those pillars that you feel you can measure. 
Um, so, you know, for your consumer pillar, you could be looking at um, the supply chain and sustainability in the supply chain, climate change within the supply chain. You could be looking at the types of products that you have and, and assessing the sustainability value of, of those products or, or services you know are are you in are you inclusive um are they sort of promoting health and well-being are they good for the planet you know those sorts of things so there's different elements of the pillars that i think you can start to break it down and and you know one of the things that we've been encouraging firms to do is to maybe think strategically about being transparent around the non-financial pillars because as you've got the evolution of the ISSB uh, framework, if you like, if firms are also thinking about what would they want to voluntarily disclose or report against their non-financial pillars? Because one of the big things here is, uh, so not, not only is it difficult to disclose, but the organization that the business needs, you know, sort of the control framework, the ownership framework, the publishing, there's a whole bunch of stuff that a corporate would need to do in order to get to that place in, in the first place. Does it mean increased amount of reporting, for example? Uh, and how do, again, asset managers actually go about it? Because the starting point has to be somewhere. So I'm guessing maybe ISSB as a starting framework point for that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Margarita, we have a lot of dialogue with our clients around disclosures and reporting. And um, obviously, there have historically been so many frameworks um, and you know on top of ISSB you have got TCFD you've got TNFD you have uh, the SBTI science-based targets um, you've, you've got um, you know a whole raw PCAP for example this there feels there does does feel like there's sort of disclosure fatigue happening within businesses um, <clears throat> and I guess because a lot of this is difficult to obtain information, there's quite a lot of manual processes involved and then and then interpreting it, let's say, in five different ways. So I think the short answer is it is really complicated for businesses. We are seeing businesses describe disclosure fatigue, um, but if you know, it can't really go away. I, I think ISSB will hope to provide an umbrella framework. Um, but you know, still you're going to have PCAF, still you're going to have SBTI, still you're going to have um, TCN, uh, TCFD, um, and I, th I think it's just inevitable. Um, firms thinking about okay, over the next five years, how are we going to manage that? What does good look like? Because people don't probably don't want to be just reactive to everything, and they aren't reactive to everything. Today's professional investors are overloaded with more information than ever, from digesting market and economic data to probing new trends and ideas. At Invesco, we help professional investors see the possibilities ahead by cutting through the noise to the ideas that matter. With a proven past and an eye on the future, we bring the latest thought-provoking investment analysis and diverse ideas directly to professional investors. Visit Invesco.com to see how. Invesco, let's advance together. Capital at risk. 
there are a lot of moving pieces, especially within businesses, uh, to go and assess how to actually define their purpose, how to align it with sustainability. And uh, what I was wondering, and this was one of the discussions that we were both part of a couple of weeks ago, do you need a dedicated director on sustainability, for example? Do you need, for example, an ESG board of an asset management company or even of the companies they invest in to make it happen at first before you actually integrate it? holistically in the whole organization, let's say? Um, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> um, so we think it's really important that you've got that um, ownership, responsibility and fluency at the board level to begin with. Um, a nominated board member who has responsibility for sustainability stroke climate change um, and, and then committees reporting into the board. So it could be part of an existing committee or it could be, let's say, a, a, a new committee. Um, and then I think if you get that part of it right, hopefully that then um, cascades down across the whole business. I think one of the mistakes that um, firms are learning is this does touch every function of the business, you know, marketing finance, um, legal, compliance, risk, um, et cetera, operations. You know, there, there's not, there isn't a part of the business that is not affected by the climate change strategy or the sustainability strategy. Um, and actually it's transformational because if you're, if you're trying to make progress on something that's complicated, that is, um, you know, ambiguous, um, then you're, I think you're going to need to set interim targets, short-term goals, and then constantly monitor and navigate through that. So what you're really looking at now is you want your person who's head of sustainability or climate change to be the transformation leader of your business. And they'll, they're going to need experts working with them. But the main, I think the main skill they need is to be able to work with the business in order to help it move to a new place. Joe, one of the big things about sustainability is decarbonization, obviously, and that was the topic that we discussed at COP26 at length, and it's not an easy task. There are some sectors that are hard to abate, that um, you have to deal with, and kind of technology elementary is not there. So with the whole decarbonization conversations, where do we stand? How can asset managers even start to grasp their pathway towards that? Because there are a lot of moving pieces there, and again, a lot of um, unclear areas within that. Yeah, I um, totally agree. Uh, and then some firms also signed up to the Power Past Coal Alliance, which looks at phasing out coal by 2030. Um, and so, you know, we're, we suggest to clients that they, they not only look at the sector level, but they also look at the subsector level. So if you're looking at coal, you might look at um, the different elements, thermal coal versus coal for steel or aluminium. Um, and you might have different transition pathways within that. So I think the subsectoral uh, view is really critical. And then there's the supply chain to the subsector is really critical because obviously understanding the climate impact of the supply chain to that business um, it, it is going to be really important. And that's obviously something that 
you know, wouldn't necessarily have been on the checklist historically. Um, believing and understanding firms' transition pathway, you know, we that quite a lot um, in the asset management world. So, you know, if you're engaging with a client or you're reviewing their transition pathway, how realistic does it feel? How, you know, do you believe they're going to hit those targets and all those kind of things? So there are a lot of moving parts here. And I think on, on top of different analysis, then you've also got managing um, different types of clients. So you'll have non-transitioners, you'll have transition deniers and deciding where an organization fits is it a transition denier is it a non-transitioner you know are they are they saying to you that they're going to transition but actually they're not type of thing sort of just working through that is complicated but let's say you you determine a business as a non-transitioner then then what is your strategy going to be with that particular business and one of the things that we've seen here is firms creating an umbrella approach um, so they're really clear with their clients and with their investee companies around the strategy that they're taking and the timeframes. So if you are going to be a non-transitioner, ultimately, you know that by X date, they, they probably will have exited you as an investment. If you're a if you see where I'm coming, if you're if you're in the sort of transition denier or the you know difficult to you're not doing very well on your transition, then you know that maybe they'll give you three years to try to come in line with the rest of the sector. So I think there's an element just to recap because that's a long answer. Um, different types of analysis and assessment, along with being clear around you know, what your strategy, what your approach is here, such that you're offering up relatively long-term timeframes so businesses know and clients know where they stand. Mm -hmm. Jill, one of the important questions, I think, when we think about asset managers and what they do about sustainability is actually, well, engage in relevant experts. And they've probably seen the most of uh, the arms race for ESG talent uh, that we've seen in the last 10 years, maybe in the last two. Uh, and what I cannot help but wonder, how does that actually impact, um, well, their salaries, even elementary, because obviously now they're in demand experts that maybe were a few in between 10 years ago, but those who have that experience will be valued really highly. So do we see some potential maybe inflation in even maybe ESG salaries after all, all heads of sustainability is being like uh, in demand commodity of sorts yes inflation in salary around um sustainability experts then you've got everybody else that needs to massively upskill um and that's happening um and i think where you end up is a place where the, uh, the workforce is upskilled such that it is capable of uh, adequately managing climate change and sustainability strategy and implementation effectively, um, at, but, but supplemented by a whole new skill set. And that could be 
the scientists, it could be the sustainability experts, it could be, um, you know, biodiversity experts, etc. as as social science experts as time goes by. So I think you, you end up with a, a slightly different approach where um, rather than putting a sustainability person in every, here's a gap, let's plug it with a, this sort of person, you end up with the business is much more upskilled in, in being able to deliver on the strategy. Um, and the experts are there alongside and your range of experts has changed. And what does that mean in the short term? Probably, as you say, an increase in salary for the or cost of hiring uh, sustainability people. But over time, I would imagine that things start to even out as, as we encompass sustainability and climate change just as our, our broader business approach. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, completely. Uh, I, I was also wondering, kind of like, does it make sense to spend, for example, on the head of sustainability, who then will work out who to upskill, which kind of program uh, for upskilling of the staff to use, and uh, again, maybe helping to define the purpose of the whole organization after all. Yeah, and I think this goes back to the point I was making earlier, which is um, this is transformational for businesses. So probably the person you want at the top is the transformation expert. And, and they will have a group of uh, sustainability and climate change experts with them. But probably the most important thing that businesses need to be able to do at the moment is, is create their strategy and implement on that strategy. And these transformation folks, I think, are pretty critical to that. Mm -hmm. And you've mentioned maybe like climate experts and uh, scientists. So, uh, will that be becoming kind of like the workforce that asset managers will have in the near future, like to have at least one person with academic background in climate, for example? Brilliant question. I, I don't know the answer to that. I, you know, how much of that will we share? And this goes back to the idea of... Um, there are there is intellectual property. There is, there are obviously comp competition boundaries, but at the same time, solving climate change isn't a competition, whether that's in the private sector or in the public sector. Um, and so, I suspect there will be more scientists within business, and not just on climate change. I think, as I say, you're going to need social scientists. You're going to need you know. Uh, folks who uh, will be able to look, look at, you know, biodiversity and a lot of the other SDGs. If we, if we look at the United Nations SDGs, then I think assessing the underlying and the technical skills that are required there, um, I think you're going to need all of that. Just as, you know, 10, 15 years ago, everybody was upskilling around digital and technology. And, you know, in order for asset managers to effectively invest in digital and technology, they needed to kind of bring in um, a whole bunch of much more technical experts in, in that particular field. So, so I think that will happen. But I also think there, there should be elements where there will be more open source, um, more collaboration, um, you know, platforms for sharing. Because again, there's no point having scientists compete with each other on this. And I think, you know, the the COVID was a great example, wasn't it, where, you know, the rate at which the vaccine was produced was remarkable. But, you know, the, the, the shame of it is how it's been distributed globally. Um, the science part, I think, worked, seemed to have worked quite well. 
Um, and then the social part around the distribution of that, I guess, is, is something that should have been looked at and needs to be looked at. Mm -hmm. We can't just go like asset managers competing with each other saying, we have the best pool of climate experts, go and invest with us because of that. So what I think might be happening is actually them pulling together resources in that regard and collaborating even more than they already do. Well, we have net zero uh, initiative uh, with asset managers, obviously, and there are biodiversity initiatives because the problem is too big to try and go it alone and make it your kind of unique selling point, let's say. Yeah, and I think as well, um, the sort of role between public finance and asset managers, it'd be interesting to explore how that might change. So for example, clearly the banks played a huge role in deployment of funds during COVID. Um, it, it obviously was an emergency situation where people needed furlough, we, people needed sea bills and, and all the rest of it. Um, this is a much longer term problem. Okay, so you, you kind of you've got a you've got a marker in the sand at, at 2030 and then potentially 2050. Um, and so as governments create more policy around climate change and think about how to create more opportunity for blended finance or public private uh, finance, mobilizing capital, um, not just for mitigation, but also for adaptation, then it would be interesting to see whether there are different ways in which asset managers might get involved in, in the deployment of funds and then managing those funds. And these are things that have been looked at before and haven't necessarily worked very well before, but we've not had this problem. <laughs> well, we have had it, but we've not <laughs> necessarily taken the same action. So I think, I think actually the role of asset management in deploying and managing public finance for mitigation and adaptation will be interesting, as well as blended finance, as well as, um, you know, uh, public money helping to stimulate particular sectors, whether that be solar um, power or, you know, ground source heat pump sector, et cetera, et cetera. Um, or indeed, public finance to really stimulate innovation. You know, we talk a lot about innovation and the fact that that's going to be critical to achieving um, the climate change goals. And so again, how does asset management play a role in that? How does public play a role in it? How does private equity and private finance, you know, private equity side of things play a role? Bill, thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. It's been a great talking to you. Thank you. The Selectors Show, Let's Talk About ESG, is sponsored by Invesco. Today's professional investors are overloaded with more information than ever. At Invesco, we help professional investors see the possibilities ahead by cutting through the noise to the ideas that matter. Visit Invesco.com to see how. Invesco. Let's advance together. Capital at risk.